Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Jen Marcocci and Emma Fabricate. For today's wrap-up, we are talking about Australia's war crimes in Afghanistan, how global is a global vaccine, Armenia, Azerbaijan and a peace deal, and Typhoon Vanco. So, you may have seen these headlines in the news recently about Australia's war crimes in Afghanistan and the toxic culture that is represented through that report. The Brereton report was four years in the making and contains disturbing evidence of the behaviour of Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. The report was released last week and found credible evidence that Australia's special forces were responsible for the murder of 39 unlawful killings of Afghan civilians, taken prisoner, farmers and others, some of which were even children. The report also found that these killings were also covered up. So what were the politics involved? Well, during interviews that were conducted for the inquiry, there was a need to understand the inner workings of the ADF and its culture, to understand where this all went wrong. In 2015, Dr. Crumfus was commissioned by two senior ADF personnel to look into these intercultural failings. And they asked her to pay particular attention to what appeared to be poor relations between Australia's most elite com- combat unit, the Special Air Service, SAS, and the commandos. The SAS is considered Australia's most elite combat units as they are deployed in high-risk locations such as Afghanistan. It's the most difficult and demanding work within the ADF. Then she was also asked to look at the commandos, which are a widely respected unit as well, but have different roles to the SAS. Dr. Crumfus was set to find out what people inside these units thought of the culture and if there was scope to change it. When interviewing, she found that people would speak to troops' conduct in Afghanistan as an indicator of the culture in question. From there, the inquiry took a turn as people started to share their stories anonymously via letters, emails and even phone calls. There had been murmurs over the years about this bad behaviour by some Australians in Afghanistan and the report concluded that there were unverifiable accounts of extreme serious breaches of accountability and trust. So what does this mean for SAS culture and who's to blame? Well, the Brereton documents show how a culture of compliance, intimidation and silence in this field hushed up the crimes. And the documents highlighted that the warrior culture of the Special Air Services Regiment commanders in Australia the document also revealed that patrol commanders on the ground were culpable and that senior management were let off the hook a little bit more because they were far removed from the situation. Junior SAS troops that were just entering the force were revealed to view the patrol commanders as demigods and one who could make or break a troop's career, which feeds into this more compromising practice called blooding which is why these killings of 39 civilians took place. Blooding is a practice where patrol commanders encourage junior soldiers to shoot a prisoner to make his first kill and then plant false evidence on the victim to make it look like an accident or that it was in self-defense. This literally sounds like it's out of a movie. It's crazy. So who's going to be held accountable for this? Well, so the ADF unreservably 
apologise, and rightly so. And they're undergoing reviews for change and taking on all of the Brereton Report's recommendations. The ADF also made a public apology to the Afghan people and contacted the head of the Afghan military and said Australia will pay compensation to the victims' families. It's worth also noting that in Canada, after a major scandal like this, the unit in question was actually disbanded, which is not happening here, but an SAS subunit has been chopped. So hopefully change will end up happening one way or another within the ADF so then this doesn't happen again. For sure. If anything, it sounds like, what movie is it? Is it called The Stanford Experiment or something like that where they put people in an experiment and they get somebody that's like a higher power and makes them do atrocities against other people and because they're taking, you know, directions from a higher authority, it kind of like justifies um, and takes away the responsibility of the people yeah. doing the action. Well, yeah, because the authority is telling them to do it. So it's like exactly. they have no option or, as I said, they feel like that their careers could just be ruined if they don't listen to the patrol commanders. That's honestly such a toxic culture. So now for topic number two, and what I'm going to be discussing is how global is a global vaccine? So with now over 55 million cases and the death of 1.3 million, the question of when we will have a global vaccine is more pressing than ever. However, as nation scientists over the world are in a race of who will develop the savior from the coronavirus, questions have begun to arise asking, Will this be accessible to all despite economic capabilities? What are the experts saying? So research shows that only two vaccines have proven high effectiveness, with a handful or more in now late stages of testing. However, none have been a successful approval of yet. The issue at hand is that wealthier countries have been able to preemptively purchase vaccines in the hope of securing an antidote for their populations. And this is not a small sum we're talking about. It's been recorded that over 6.4 billion vaccines have already been purchased with an extra 3.2 billion as reserved. Wow. But what is the issue with that? Well, there are two sides to the coin. If we look at the positives, obviously the mass influx of capital being out being put out into these vaccines is assisting and helping fund the research labs and production of more vaccines. And it's also completely normal in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's not like there's any foul play. If we're looking at it from this perspective, then one would assume that the more funding simply equals the closer we are to finding a cure. But that's not completely the case. You see, the issue with the first come, first serve mentality is that we are directly feeding into the unequal balance of power. In this sense, economic capabilities, which at core is heading into a scenario where the rich countries will have vaccines and the poorer countries are likely to have access. are unlikely to have access, as mentioned by Andrea Taylor, who has been leading the Duke analysis. Now, Rachel Silverman, a policy analyst at the Center for Global Development think tank, said the most promising vaccines, in quote, are largely covered by advanced purchase agreements, mostly from wealthy countries, end quote. These wealthy countries have been able to afford to put various eggs in different baskets, meaning that the probability of having access to an effective vaccine is higher than those nations with less disposable capital to secure different possible vaccines. The estimates by researchers thus predict that although a successful vaccine will most likely be found by mid-next year, it will unlikely reach any significant distribution to middle to low income nations until the end of 2021 to 2022. 
as noted in BBC, as noted in BBC News, in quotations, we talk about the 90-10 divide in global health, in which 90% of the world's pharmaceutical products only serve 10% of the world's population. This is part of that story, said Mrs. Wenham. Yeah. Is anything being done to counter this? So fortunately, yes, but we're still awaiting to see an action and see its effectiveness. So the joint, there's been the initiation of a joint initiative between the Gavi Vaccines Alliance, the WHO, so the World Health Organization, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. Basically, the initiative aims to procure enough vaccines for participating countries to inoculate at least 20% of their population. The program is designed so that richer countries agree to buy into possible vaccines and help finance access for poorer nations. And so far, some of 186 economies are involved. So basically, there's three stages to this program, which aims to prioritize allocation stages for vaccine rollout. So stage one basically would roll out the vaccines to 3% of the population, which is to healthcare workers and social care workers. Stage two would then be to 20% of the population, which would be going towards citizens over 65 or people with high risk, such as immune diseases. And then finally, stage three, which would be 20% plus of population, which is further priority groups. Um, So slowly, slowly, we'll be trying to target from the most affected to the least affected. Yeah, that's crazy. At least they've got a bit of strategy going ahead. Hopefully it goes through. Moving away from the global pandemic, we're moving more towards the tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan and the peace deal that's recently been struck and is rolling out. So last time we spoke about this topic, things were just starting to heat up and Azerbaijan and Armenia were neck and neck dropping bombs and were making threats to each side. But at the same time, tensions were looking like they might subside. But that wasn't 100% the case. A few things have occurred before this peace deal has been struck and before the region in question has been divvied up to satisfy everybody. But head to our last episode that was released on the 13th of October to get caught up on that side of the topic. Yes, please get us up to speed. Well, tensions between the former Soviet Union countries reached new heights on the 27th of September when clashes between Azerbaijan and ethnic Armenians forces broke out over the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave and surrounding areas. Nagorno-Karabakh is in Azerbaijan but has been dominated by ethnic Armenians for years. Most of Azerbaijan's southwest district of Agdam has been under the control of Armenia's separatists since 1993. Before the post-Soviet war, it was inhabited by some 130,000 people, mostly ethnic Azerbaijanis, who were expelled from their homes. Recently, the six-week conflict killed more than a 1,000 people, including civilians on both sides. On November 10, however, the two countries came together and signed a Russia-brokered agreement to end end the fighting and work towards a comprehensive resolution. A couple days ago, Azerbaijani forces entered the war-ravaged ghost town of Agdam, which is in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, regaining a once-beloved city over a quarter of a century after being driven out by Armenian forces, which is a massive win for Azerbaijan. Agdam and the surrounding regions are the first of several territories adjacent to the separatist Nagorno-Karabakh to be turned over under a ceasefire. Um, so what else was in this peace deal? The AFP journalists 
last week saw Armenian soldiers were actually destroying buildings of their headquarters in Agdam. In the hours leading up to the handover, residents of the district set their houses on fire and wanted to leave nothing behind for their long-standing rivals. As a part of this peace deal, Armenia agreed to return some 15 to 20% of Nagorno-Karabakh territory captured by Azerbaijan in recent fighting, including the historic town of Shusha. Armenia will also hand over the Kalbajar district, wedged between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia on November 25th and the Laknan district by December 1st. Speaking on the ground in Agdam, Al Jazeera's Osmana bin Javid said the area has become a ghost town. In quotes, this place was one of the most populated areas in Nagorno-Karabakh, he said. Almost 200,000 people used to live here. All of them became displaced in Azerbaijan. We're speaking to many who want to return to Agdam, but they say the area is not safe. He continued, the government has to make sure all the Armenian fighters are gone, the infrastructure is rebuilt, and the area is cleared of mines and unexploded munitations so that people could go back and rebuild their lives, end quote. So there's a lot to do before we reach a normal point of life again in these regions anyway. Amazing. Well, thank you for that update. And If we're moving on to topic four, I wanted to speak on the gruesome time that the Philippines has been undergoing in terms of natural disasters. So the Philippines has been one of the nations most affected by natural disasters this year, which hasn't even ended and has experienced 21 storms, leaving tens of thousands of people to lose their homes and had to seek shelter in evacuation centers, including in the capital, Manila. To be precise, it is estimated that more than 283,000 people are seeking refuge in 2,205 evacuation centers, while over 44,000 people are being served outside of formal shelters. Just two weeks ago, the latest storm known as Typhoon Vamco took the lives of more than 40 people with still 20 missing, and this was on the back of a triple hit of Typhoon Quinta, Roly, and Ulysses in quick succession, causing the worst floods in recent memory, being the biggest storms in the last seven years. Residents were left with over one floor of flooding and many with complete destruction of their homes and some loss of loved ones. To make matters worse, the lingering of coronavirus has made efforts to mitigate it almost impossible, leading to the infection of over 400,000 corona cases and close to 8,000 deaths, which is one of the highest counts in Asia. What is the aftermath of the nation's state? So the... OCHA, which is the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, reported the following. Agriculture damage from the sequence of typhoons have reached $49 million in Region 2 and $207 million across the affected regions in Luzon. Preliminary estimates of the damage to infrastructure was recorded at $165 million in eight regions. According to the Department of Energy, power has now been restored in 316 cities and municipalities. Some 50 municipalities in two regions continue to experience water interruptions and 51 cities are experiencing communication network interruptions. 
What has the government done to help the recovery? Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte has placed the country's main island, Luzon, under a state of calamity to speed up relief and rehabilitation efforts. So on the 14th of November, the government announced creation of a task force that will be in charge of rehabilitation of calamity-stricken areas and further develop expertise on post-disaster rehabilitation and recovery. They've also sent out more equipment and personnel, including doctors, nurses, search and rescue teams to the worst affected areas. The Department of Agriculture released over 45 million in assistance to Cagayan Valley farmers worst affected by the latest storm, and the Department of Budget and Finance announced a 312 million replenishment of national government quick response funds to enable quick available resources to citizens affected. What about an international response? So as always, international non-governmental organizations such as Oxfam are at the forefront of fundraising for nations that have experienced natural and other disasters. America's Red Cross delegation in the Philippines also had prepared for the arrival of typhoons Goni and Vamco by pre-positioning emergency response teams, first aid, hygiene kits, and other relief supplies in key areas. Teams helped early on by evacuating people and pets in vulnerable areas to safe evacuation. The delegations have remained in close contact to surveil the urgent need and have been doing their best with volunteers to relieve some of the struggles they have been facing. So it's not like these storms took them by surprise. They've definitely had premeditated measures and, and prevention, but it's definitely been a very difficult year for the Philippines in terms of the amount of storms they've received and also having to battle with coronavirus. So these are times when non-governmental organizations and also working closely with the state has aided in the quick recovery and reconstruction of the cities within the Philippines. Some sad news, but at least they're on the road to recovery. Thanks for listening to our last bi-monthly news wrap-up for Season 2 of Global Questions. But don't worry because we will be back in Season 3, so make sure you check back in for content about the up-and-coming next season in the next few weeks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>